The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Trump gets worse every week, so why don't more people take to the streets? Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that. We'll speak with her later in the hour. Also, last month was the 50th anniversary of Americans walking on the moon. What would it take to get a similar mobilization of money and effort today to combat climate change. D.D. Guttenplan will comment. He's editor of The Nation. But first, of course, we're still thinking about the mass killings on Saturday, and especially about El Paso, where 21-year-old Patrick Crucius murdered 22 people and wounded dozens more in a jihad against what he called an immigrant invasion. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and a political analyst for CNN. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Well, none of us have been very enthusiastic about Beto O'Rourke as a presidential candidate, but El Paso is his hometown, and we we looked to him after the shootings. What did he have to say? He had a lot of uh, cuss words to say, John, and they were all really appropriate and especially for the media, you know, I mean, I, this is what I wrote about in the nation a few days ago was just, you know, waking up to find out that Beto at at the end of a long day spent comforting survivors and talking to law enforcement and trying to figure out what had happened in his hometown was asked by some reporter. Thank God. We don't know who it was. The president is speaking tomorrow, sir. What can he do to make things better? And Beto went off on the guy and said, are you kidding me? He's spewing racism. He is a font of of this hate. And he said the words, what the F? I mean, this is a a family podcast, so I won't say everything. But, you. you know. He said the S word. He just he just went off and, you know, it went viral. And, and Beto, I think, is probably going to rise a little bit in the polls as well he should uh, because he really said what so many of us were thinking. I mean, we are so sick of the mainstream media acting like they expect Donald Trump to suddenly pivot and become a decent person. And it never happens, and it doesn't happen even if he reads correctly from a teleprompter, which he actually didn't on Monday, but, you know, he did say some of the right things. He condemned white supremacy. Who cares? Who cares? He spreads white supremacy. He is a white supremacist. So Beto spoke for many millions of us when he just lost his temper with, let's just say, well-meaning reporter and said, why do you continue to act as though this man can do anything good when he is not the only source, not the only font of evil, but certainly a major one. And then on Monday, teleprompter Trump said, quote, hate has no place in America. Hatred warps the mind, close quote. How did this go over with the mainstream media? Unfortunately, there were too many people who acted like it made a difference. Oh, we've never heard this from him before. And a lot of people said falsely that he didn't do this after Charlottesville. As a matter of fact, John, he did do it after Charlottesville. 
in 2017. He, he said some of the right things in a monotone, just as he did yesterday. It was clear he didn't mean any of this. But then a day or two later, he said what, what became rightfully more famous, that there were good people on both sides of the clash with, between Nazis and Nazi protesters. So sadly, even after Beto lost it and used cuss words and got a lot of attention, I got to say, a lot of the people in the mainstream media acted as though what Trump did had meaning, as though the words that he spoke were meaningful. People acted like, whoa, he said white supremacy. Wow. He talked about hatred. He talked about racism. And it was incredibly disappointing to me to see that. The New York Times got in a lot of trouble on Monday night after Trump's speech for a couple of headlines, but one, one that said Trump came out against racism. No, no, he didn't, because he can't. One statement does not change who he is. Part of what I wrote about, even before Beto's comments, was watching him get off his uh, helicopter at Marine One on Sunday evening after he spent a whole weekend golfing, golfing while, while 30 people were being murdered, and then this this pomp and ceremony where he comes down the stairs and there's a Marine saluting him and there are journalists waiting for him. And again, it's this ritual that we've always observed with all of our presidents. But given who he is, that ritual dishonors the people who died, certainly in El Paso, where we know there's a through line from his rhetoric to the deaths, through the murderer to the deaths. I'm not sure about Dayton yet. One of the best things in the media over the weekend was that they found some uh, footage of a Trump rally, I believe it was in May, in northern Florida. I had never heard this before. Very revealing. Tell us about that. When he was in the Florida panhandle, he was at a rally and he was ranting that the Border Patrol can't even use guns against these poor families, mostly families who are crossing illegally. And he went on and on, don't forget, we don't let them, we can't let them use weapons, other countries do, we can't, how do you stop them if you can't? And somebody, I think it was a woman, yelled out, shoot them. And People laughed, and he laughed, and he was like, ha ha, only in the panhandle can you get away with that. Only in the panhandle, as though he wishes you could get away with it everywhere. And then on Monday morning, Trump tweeted that he consider supporting some kind of background checks in exchange for the Democrats supporting what he called desperately needed immigration reform, you know, he sees everything in terms of a deal. So I guess it shouldn't surprise us that he would connect his fight to reduce immigration, which of course has nothing to do with mass killings. And it seems to me also, wouldn't this be basically a reward to the Texas gunman who does want immigration reform if his killings resulted in this passing, that would be a reward for his actions, wouldn't it? 
It would. It would mean that terrorism works. And let's, you know, he used the term immigration reform, but I just want to spell out for you what he wants in terms of immigration reform. It's not what we've been talking about for the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. It is building the wall. It is eliminating or hugely cutting back on family reunification. Uh, it, it, it means ending asylum or making asylum incredibly difficult. Uh, and it also means sharp restrictions on even legal immigration. They don't, un- you know, unless, as he, as he once said, you know, unless it's people from Norway. And people from Norway have it so good they don't want to come here. So his idea of immigration reform is racist from the get-go. So, yeah, he's basically trying to use a racist massacre to pass his racist immigration policies. He did draw, I got to say, you know, we got to always look on the bright side when there is one, John. He did drop that from his speech on Monday. <laughs> he tweeted it out as, as well as tweeting out stuff about blaming fake news for oh, yeah. the murders, um, which also came straight from the uh, El Paso shooters so-called manifesto. But by the time he, they sat him in front of the teleprompter, they had convinced him not to say insane stuff like that. We've been talking about the news coverage in the mainstream media. I thought the editorial in the New York Times was pretty good. They said, uh, if one of the perpetrators of this week's two mass shootings had adhered to the ideology of radical Islam... The resources of the American government would mobilize without delay. The awesome power of the state would work tirelessly to deny future terrorists access to weaponry, money, and forums to spread their ideology. The movements would be infiltrated by spies and informants. Its financiers would face sanctions. Places of congregation would be placed under surveillance. Those who gave aid and comfort to terrorists would be prosecuted. Programs would be established to de-radicalize former adherents. No Americans would accept laying the blame for such an attack on video games as the president did. I thought that was a pretty good point. I think so, too. I mean, you know, I don't want to live in a surveillance state, you know, whether it's a Muslims or disaffected white guys. But we've got to admit that even the Obama administration, they came out early in his in his first term. They came out with. Uh, a report saying that the the biggest domestic threat was not, you know, radical Islam, but was white supremacists, white militant groups, militia groups, etc. And they got such pushback from the, the right that even Obama, I mean, I don't think he did it personally, but they, they disbanded that office at Homeland Security. And Trump has further stripped those, the offices that, that follow white radicalism, white, white supremacy uh, over the years, it, it's been gutted. But obviously, if this guy had been, had been Muslim, I mean, it would change everything. If these, you know, if these last several people, if Cesar Sayak, who just got sentenced, the guy who, you know, sent a bunch of ineffectual bombs to Democrats and, and uh, journalists, but they didn't have to be ineffectual, um, and he just got sentenced to 20 years. If it, you know, if he had been a Muslim sending these things to Trump and Republicans or Democrats, if the Pittsburgh Tree of Life murderer 
terrorist, had been Muslim. All of these things that we've seen in the last couple of years, we are, I mean, our laws would have changed totally just like they did after 9-11. Again, I, I don't want us to go into a panic the way we did after 9-11. I just want some proportionality. And I think that resources need to be invested in finding these guys, identifying them, identifying what radicalizes them. You know, I'm a free speech person, but I'm thrilled that 8chan, where they post all their sick manifestos, is being taken down or having a hard time finding a place to be hosted. I think there's a lot that we can do. But the main thing the media has to do is talk about all of the various wellsprings, uh, and one of them is in the White House. Trump is trying to use a racist massacre to pass racist immigration policies. Joan Walsh wrote about the mass shooting in El Paso for thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thanks, John. Talk to you soon. Trump gets worse every day, so why aren't more people in the streets? Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. Her most recent book is Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, remind us about the great days of protest right after Trump took office in January 2017. It was pretty exciting. It seemed there was almost a year there where people demonstrated all the time. First of all, there was the the Women's March the day after the inauguration. That was huge, one of the biggest demonstrations that there had ever been. There were marches for science, for the environment. There was a big march on Income Tax Day about Trump not revealing his taxes, which it's still, you know, we could do that every year. Oh, that's still going on. And other ones as well. And it just seemed that uh, there was this practical orgy of phoning your congressperson and your senator, sending postcards. I used to postcard the White House all the time, just saying, I hate, just want you to know, I still hate you. <laughs> um, and I was far from alone. I want to also say that remember when um, voters would confront Republican lawmakers when they would have their town halls in their district. I remember there was a picketing even of Democrats like Sidney, like uh, Senator Schumer at his house uh, when he seemed too eager to compromise with Trump. So there was a lot of militancy at many different levels. So first we had a year of militant, massive, nationwide protests And then there was a second chapter in the resistance as the midterm elections approached. Remind us about that. Yes. Then there was, uh, which is still going on, local organizing around elections. And that has been pretty successful. We took back, in 2018, we took back the House. We made important progress in the states. Black voters mobilized. There was, you know, a big drive to get people registered, to get people the papers they need to register. And there was in, in, Indivisible and Run, Vote, Lead and Swing Left. 
the Democratic Socialists of America were very active. All that on the ground, door-to-door stuff is really important. And you know who was doing a lot of it? It's really interesting was these mostly suburban, mostly white women of the resistance with a capital R. And that was very effective and very important when you consider that 52% of white women voted for Trump in the first place. And that was then, and this is now. Where are we now? Well, you know, this is what I wonder. And, you know, I'm sure I miss a lot. But we have this enormous crisis on the border. We have the most horrible things happening there. We have, you know, children in cages and families being separated and little kids being taken away with no identification to get them back to their families. Just terrible things. People have died in those places. And there has been a lot of fundraising, um, a lot of it online, um, and I'm sure most of the people listening to this have donated to HIAS and RICES and other groups, and there have been some demonstrations, <laughs> but it isn't, it isn't what I would have expected. I, I went to um, a demonstration in New Haven on July 2nd, which was the day when there was a national call for demonstrations. And, you know, there were 200 people there. And I felt like I almost knew them, you know. <laughs> they, they could all have been nation readers. I didn't feel that kind of breakout rage. I know there are things happening on the border itself. And, you know, there are lots and lots of good people doing lots and lots of good things. But the kind of thing where it really takes fire, I, I still don't see. My favorite recent protests were was the Lights for Liberty campaign, the vigil to end human detention camps, which brought thousands of Americans to detention centers, prisons around the country, into the streets, and sometimes in their own front yards to protest the inhumane conditions faced by refugees. The the call was shine a light, bring a candle. Here where we record our show in L.A., almost 5,000 people gathered at dusk outside the ICE Metropolitan Detention Center downtown, and they shined their lights at the windows of the prison and chanted in Spanish, you are not alone. There were more than 20 other vigils like that just in Southern California, hundreds of others all over the country. I looked at the list. There were Six in Alabama. There were three in Arkansas. And this is now your Minnesota Moment news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. There were Lights for Liberty vigils in 13 different cities and little towns in Minnesota. Like there was one in Grand Marais up by the Canadian border. There was one in Ely, the gateway to the Boundary Waters canoe wilderness. There was Elk River, which is the big ice detention center for Minnesota, where several hundred immigrant detainees are held in the Sherburne County Jail. Hundreds of people showed up there to protest. So this was a little bit like the Women's March, where it was it was decentered all around the country. Sometimes just a half a dozen people, sometimes thousands of people gathered for these protests. It didn't get the publicity that some of the bigger marches had, but I thought it was wonderful. Well, I think it's wonderful too. And in fact, that happened the weekend I was, uh, that happened right before my column went to press. So I had to rewrite it to be a little more hopeful. 
than than the original had been. And what about Me Too? It's not a street protest movement, but it's certainly changing America. Absolutely. And I guess I was thinking more about about the border. And Me, Me Too is a very interesting phenomenon because it isn't really a lot of demonstrations. Don't you think? Oh, I mean, has there been a big Me Too demonstration? I don't think so. Um, it's individual people, mostly in social media, telling what happened to them. Exactly, exactly. And a Me Too has really changed a lot of things. And I don't mean to play down people's activism, because a lot of people are very active, and, and social media is one of the places where they are. If we look around the world, is there any evidence anywhere in the world that street protests are effective? Well, these yellow vests in France are really something. They have been coming to Paris every Saturday for over half a year to protest uh, an increase in gas taxes, to rally against a lowered speed limit on country roads and ask for a raise in the minimum wage, to name just a few of their issues. And they've, they've won. They've won a lot. In Hong Kong, one in seven residents, imagine that, one in seven residents took to the streets over a law predict, permitting the extradition of um, criminal defendants to mainland China. Um, and that's still going on, and it's becoming quite violent and horrible. But the bill was shelved, and Carrie Lam, who's the territory's chief executive, apologized. I mean, she's still there, but say, I know people say, you know, oh, street protests, that's so, that's so 60s. That, that doesn't accomplish anything. That is really not true. It's really not true. And those are two examples of uh, places in which it's not true. And, you know, people power. People power has done a lot. People power overthrew the Marcos regime in, in, in um, the Philippines. And Puerto Rico. What about that? People power. I just wonder what would happen if we were a little more like that. So you're obviously right that despite the protests that we have seen and the the critical movements that have arisen, there certainly has been a dramatic decline of mass street protests in America compared to the year after Trump took office. Do you have any explanation for this? Is it just Trump fatigue? Well, I asked I asked a bunch of people that, and uh, one answer I got a lot of was, um, yeah, Trump fatigue. Every day it's a new awful thing, and you can't keep up. Another was people are depressed. Another was it's too hot. <laughs> I, I don't accept the weather, the weather explanation. But I think a lot of people are depressed, and they're concentrating on the little piece that they feel they can get somewhere with, and not so much the big picture. I think a big a big aspect of this is people are already turning to the presidential election, which is, you know, 16 or 15 months away. Um, but already, you know, that's in the headlines every day. And so I think there's a sense of like, well, okay, we've really got to concentrate on 2020 and not, you know, just aim everything at that. Well, after you wrote about this demobilization for your latest column in The Nation, your readers took to the comments section of the website to help us understand and provide their own answers to this question. And the the most popular answer to the question of why are not people not taking to the streets anymore among the comments on your piece uh, was 
Nancy Pelosi. It's her fault. Let me quote this reader of your column. Why aren't people taking to the streets like they used to? Pelosi and the entire Democrat leadership are worthless and determined to take the nation back to the good old days of neoliberalism and republicanism light. They are determined to force another Clinton clone on us, to animate a zombie Democrat like Joe Biden and swipe the nomination on the third ballot of the convention, close quote. This got 18 thumbs-up responses and only six thumbs-down responses. I noticed you did not post a reply. Um, I almost never post anything in the comment section because um, I think the level of discourse there is pretty low. Um, <laughs> So you don't think Nancy Pelosi is the reason for the demobilization of street protest? No, I don't. I, I don't think so. I, I think we have to look into ourselves a little bit more. Do you have any concluding thoughts? Well, you know, in my piece, I said something I've been thinking about, which is I say we've internalized a tiny Trump who lives in our heads and jeers at our puny efforts, our letters, our clever memes, and our belief that facts are stubborn things. After all, everyone knows facts are just fake news. And I think that there's some truth to that. I think, you know, we love to portray Trump as completely ridiculous and ineffective and stupid, but that's not true. There's a way in which Trump is very clever as a propagandist, and I think that it's very demoralizing. It's very demoralizing to have him as our president. Katha Pollitt wrote about taking protests to the streets for her latest column. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Nice to be here. If you're into the nation's brand of no-holds-barred journalism and analysis, make sure to check out our friends at Mother Jones. They have this awesome podcast out every Wednesday, hosted by Jamila King. It's called the Mother Jones Podcast. Each episode goes deep on something you probably don't know about. One recent three-part series on the show explored America's hidden war in Syria with award-winning journalist Shane Bauer, who went behind the lines of this conflict to bring you surprising stories from inside an ISIS prison and an exclusive interview with the first American woman to be charged with terrorism for joining her husband in the Islamic State. The Mother Jones podcast shares with you the best investigations from the magazine. Think electoral skullduggery, dark money, and Trump's Russia connections. Alongside informative interviews with Mother Jones reporters and newsmakers. The Mother Jones podcast makes your week more informed with the stories that really matter, told by their team of smart, fearless reporters. Subscribe now on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy quality podcasts. Last month was the 50th anniversary of Americans walking on the moon, an anniversary loved by the mainstream media that was not celebrated by the left. What is it about the left and the space program? For comment, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor of The Nation and author most recently of the book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. Don, welcome back. Great to be back, John. Well, The Nation wrote about the moon landing back when it happened in the summer of 1969, 50 years ago, what did the magazine say? Well, we said two things, neither of which will surprise your listeners. Um, 
we thought that the money would be better spent here on Earth, and somewhat surprisingly to me, because it was quite a bit ahead of ahead of our time in, in this, uh, we pointed out that although all the commentators on TV were talking about the blackness of space, all the faces you saw on the screen from Houston and elsewhere were white. Um, so th that was our contemporary response to the space program, at least as a magazine. Well, that's, you know, certainly what I thought at the time is what you're describing the magazine said. This was... Uh an attempt to make America look great and distract people from the crimes we were committing in Vietnam and in our inner cities. What did you think 50 years ago? Well, this is maybe where we come into a bit of a generational divide because uh, 50 years ago, which means I, I am old enough to have been alive 50 years ago, I'd just come back from a Boy Scout camping trip uh, and I was completely in love with the space program, and I guess I never completely lost that sense of awe and amazement. I mean, my, my parents uh, had to be prevailed upon to wake me up to watch Neil Armstrong set his foot down that ladder on the moon, but they did, and I'm still eternally grateful. I should maybe also confess, and this isn't something that probably the last editor of the nation would say, that uh, it was one of the sadder days in my life when I realized that that having to wear glasses meant I could never become an astronaut, which which was my career ambition, at oh. least until the age of 12 or 13. Um, and I guess when I saw our coverage this time, and uh, I have to say I, I don't always blow my own horn on this program, but it was my idea that we should have some graphic comment on the anniversary of the news landing and uh, Robert Best, our wonderful design director, came up with, found someone who who had um, uh, Peter Cooper, the cartoonist, who sent him this wonderful cartoon of Trump on the moon, which allowed me to write one of my favorite recent headlines, which was To the Moon, yeah. which again, for, re for readers of a certain age, will conjure up Jackie Gleason's voice and perhaps his yes. hand making a fist. And I thought that was the that was the best rationale we could come up with now for reviving the space program is if they would promise to put Trump on the first rocket and may, and maybe leave him there. You know, I was trying to get at something a little deeper, which I think uh, is a long-term gripe of mine, which is what I call eat your spinach socialism, uh, and it's simply the idea that you know if you're on the left, then. It's all about uh, the greater good, and it's always has, there's always has to be a, a consciousness of all the evil that we're doing all the time, and that there's no space in our lives, because we're not allowed to have space in our lives, for, for simple awe. Now, of course, put, awe at putting a man or a person on, on the moon is not simple awe, because that involves a lot of economic and other policy decisions, and, and I think it's perfectly right that the nation noticed them in 1969 and continues to point them out. Uh, but I also think that we, we can do both, that we can, you know, this is, this is in fact the richest country in the history of the world, and we could give everybody uh, decent health care and a decent pension and a decent standard of living and free pre-kindergarten and college education at public universities and still explore space because we're humans and we have the urge to explore. And I guess I wanted to push back a little bit against the, the kind of orthodoxy on the left that says, oh no, that's not for us. Well, just looking at the 
money in the mobilization that went into the moonshot, uh, the nation argued then that it was a question of priorities. This was the orthodox objection. The money should have been spent on the inner cities. That was the summer. Let me just remind our listeners when, especially in Detroit and Newark, there were massive riots and rebellions that really destroyed the inner cities there. They showed the desperation and rage that prevailed in northern uh, urban black uh, ghettos. Shouldn't we ask the same question about priorities today? Of course we should ask the same question. And in fact, if you look at the editorial I wrote, A Moonshot for the Earth, it says it has always been a question of priorities. And indeed, we should, we should ask the question of priorities, and I, I urge us to answer it by making the Green New Deal this generation's moonshot. In other words, by making the conversion to a post-petroleum economy and undertaking every bit as ambitious, not just as ambitious economically, although I think we do need to spend money on that order of magnitude at least, but also as ambitious intellectually and emotionally, and even if you want to go there spiritually, uh, that, you know, something to lift the hearts and minds and gazes of a generation, uh, I think, yes, we need to do that, and we we can do that. I, I would slightly demur in the sense that I... I'm not sure I would sign up to the belief that doing that means we therefore have to turn away from exploring our own solar system. But that's not, that's not my main argument in this, in this editorial. My argument in A Moonshot for the Earth is that the Green New Deal for this generation can be what the space program was for my generation, which isn't just something to watch on TV or to spend money on, but a source of incredible inspiration and wonder. And in your piece for The Nation, you hasten to add that you're not the first person to suggest that we need a mobilization like the space program of the 60s to respond to climate change. Well, that's right. No, back in 2003, the Apollo Alliance tried to bring labor and environmental groups together. And uh, five years ago in in the nation, Van Jones was arguing for a green capitalism. I guess what I would say is that those are both good ideas, but they're not ambitious enough that the Apollo moonshot cost us $288 billion in today's dollars, uh, and the Green New Deal ought to be at least as big. Um, And also, uh, I point out, well, there are a couple of things. I mean, I point out uh, that unlike the the Apollo program, which was a choice and in some sense perhaps a luxury, saving the Earth isn't a choice. It isn't an option. It's a necessity. So we, we have to do it. Uh, but I also think that given that we have to do it, we ought to take a certain amount of comfort from President Kennedy's injunction at the, at the inauguration of the space program that we choose to do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I mean, I think getting ourselves off of our addiction to fossil fuels is not going to be easy, but doing it will be an inspiration, and also we have to do it. I think the one other thing to throw in uh, to this discussion, which I didn't really mention in, in my nation piece, is that, you know, it used to be that whenever we would make a case for really ambitious, transformative uh, social programs, and not just social programs, but government programs, because remember, a lot of the same people who say they love, they hate government cheered on the space program. So, you know, not all government programs are created equal, clearly. 
that it used to be that the the conservatives and the republicans said well fiscally we can't do this because you know orthodox economics because supposedly the laws of economics well all of those laws have been thrown out of the window in the last 2 years or 3 years you know the the republicans clearly think that we can spend money on whatever they want to spend money on so they have no standing to say we can't spend money on the on the order of magnitude that it will take to do a green new deal on a green new deal and i think that's an important political asset that we should also realize that we have now so should our conclusion on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing be if we can put a man on the moon we can slow down climate change i think if we can put a man on the moon we can not just slow climate change we can get ourselves off fossil fuels we can build a 21st century transportation system so that americans don't have to use their cars to get anywhere in this country and we can provide millions of good well-paying satisfying union jobs in transforming the economic and energy infrastructure of this country. D.D. Guttenplan, he wrote about how the Green New Deal is this generation's moonshot. Read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Don. This is great. Great to be here, John. Thanks. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. (laughs) 